this morning before we start God's word, um, the introduction to the message is also the prayer. Um, so we're going to pray and then we're just going to jump right in. And so I pray, my hope is that this prayer, which comes from the Valley of Vision, titled Reconciliation, would warm your heart, prepare your heart for what we will begin encountering here in this passage in Colossians. So if you would just receive this prayer. Lord God Almighty, thou art beforehand with men, for thou has reconciled thyself to the world through the cross and dost beseech men to accept reconciliation. It is my responsibility to grasp thy overtures of grace. For if thou, the offended part, act first with the word of appeasement, I need not call in question thy willingness to save. But I must deplore my own foolish maliciousness. If I do not come to thee as one who seeks thy favor, I live in contempt, anger, malice, self-sufficiency, and thou does call it enmity. Thou hast taught me the necessity of a mediator, a Messiah, to be embraced in love with all my heart, as a king to rule me, as prophet to guide me, as priest to take away my sin and death, and this by faith in thy beloved Son who teaches me, not to guide myself, not to obey myself, not to try to rule and conquer sin, but to cleave to the one who will do it all for me. Thou hast made known to me that to save me is Christ's work, but to cleave to him by faith is my work. And with this faith is the necessity of my daily repentance as a mourning for the sin which Christ by grace has removed. Continue, O God, to teach me that faith apprehends Christ's righteousness, not only for the satisfaction of justice, but as unspotted evidence of thy love to me. Help me to make use of his work of salvation as the ground of peace and of thy favor to and acceptance of me, the sinner, so that I may always live near the cross. Amen. Amen. That prayer was called reconciliation because that is the, the theme, the heart of our passage this morning in the book of Colossians. So if you would turn with me in your copy of God's word to Colossians chapter one. And we are going to continue our series in the book of Colossians. And this is also part within our mini series within the series of Colossians called the incomparable Christ. Uh, so this message is simply titled the incomparable Christ Part four. So what we're going to see in comparable about the Lord Jesus Christ here is his reconciling work. And we're going to see this beautiful truth of reconciliation. And we're going to see that because the Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled us to himself, you and I are now, are now able to pursue holiness and persevere in the faith. So let me read this morning's passage. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23. Colossians 1, verses 19 through 23. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. <clears throat> Our first point this morning is simply the plan of reconciliation. The plan of reconciliation, which is going to be verses 19 and 20. 
you know, the first thing we need to see is that the only manner, the only way in which a sinful man or woman or child could ever be reconciled to a holy God is through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is truly man and truly God. It is the Lord Christ alone who can bring these two, bring the holy God and the sinful individual together. There is no other way. I'm going to be brief on this point because that has been what we've been seeing the last few weeks as we've been looking at Christ in these verses when we started in verses 13 and so forth. But what I want to draw our attention here in this first point is if you look at verse 19, it says, for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness. That word fullness is an important word. It means the completeness, the totality of, the sum. When it says in verse 19 that it was the father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him, what it's saying simply is that Jesus is God. It's a claim to deity. Everything that is true of God is true of Christ. The completeness and totality of God is in Christ. If we were to go to Colossians chapter 2, just a chapter ahead to verse 9, it would say, it says, for in him all the fullness, there's that word again, of deity dwells in bodily form. If we were to go a couple books back to the book of Ephesians and go to chapter 1 and look at verse 23, it says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, starting at verse 22, sorry, and gave him as head over all things the church, which is the body, the fullness of him all in all. All that is God is in Christ. All of it. And that is an important truth for us to never lose sight of, never grow dull to. Because what it's reminding us is if the fullness of God is in Christ, all that you and I will ever need is Christ. We don't need anything else. There is, if it's full in him, why would we have to go anywhere else? The false teachers during the time uh, that Paul was writing this letter that were infiltrating Colossae believed, didn't believe that the fullness was there. And so there was this idea that you had to go to different angelic or spiritual beings and get a little bit there and get a little bit here to achieve this fullness. So when Paul says that the fullness of God is in Christ, he is powerfully countering that claim. It is a claim for Christ alone is all that the true Christian needs. That's important because that means all that we ever need is found in him. You don't need Jesus and psychology, Jesus and philosophy. You just need Christ. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him is the only place to be redeemed and reconciled. In him alone is forgiveness. In him alone is your identity and your self-worth. What's interesting is that this word fullness, though, also reminds us, points to the Old Testament. When he would talk about the fullness of God filling the temple. And so in the book of Ezekiel, Chapter 10, we, we, verses 3 and 4, we read this. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered. And the cloud filled the, intercourt, the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. God filled that temple. A little bit later in Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 4, we read, Then he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. 
And yet now in Christ, the fullness, the glory, the presence of God is in him. In him. Jesus, Jesus radiates the glory of God because he is the fullness of God. If you think about that, right, we have this access to Christ. Not everybody could go into the temple of the Old Testament and, and go into the presence of the Lord. And yet every single man, woman, and child, young and old, rich and poor, highly educated, barely educated, has access to the fullness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That is beautiful. There in Colossians chapter 1 again, verse 19, it says the fullness of to dwell in him. That word dwell means to live in, to be at home in, to reside. That's important because this doesn't mean that something was added to Jesus. It doesn't mean that Jesus was simply a Jewish carpenter and then God decided, you know what, I'm going to fill this person and use them. No. The fullness of God has always been in Christ. God, the son, the second member of the Trinity is fully God. So the fullness of God dwelling in Christ is simply saying that is a part of his very nature and being. In other word, dwell, he dwells among us, talks about it in John. We're going to see this in a moment, right? But we're seeing here also is the fullness of God dwelling in Christ is telling us Jesus is, Jesus replaces the temple as the true and great temple of God. If we were to go to Matthew chapter 12, verse six, we read this. But I say to you something greater than the temple is here. That's Christ. He's greater than the temple. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then in John chapter 2, just a chapter later, verses 19 through 22, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and, you, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word of Jesus, which had, he had spoken. Jesus is the greatest, the great temple. He is the true temple of God. The temple is where man would go to be reconciled to God, where man would go to, to encounter God. We don't go to temples. We go strictly to Christ. The fullness of God is in Christ. And so we go there. We don't go to the temple to worship God. We go to Christ to worship God. In understanding now fullness and dwell, we can go back to the beginning of verse 19, where it says it was the father's good pleasure. Right? The father was delighted. The father was well pleased that the fullness of himself dwelt in the son. Why? Because as we're going to see now, the father was well pleased because it was through his son that all things are going to be reconciled and that God will be glorified. The father's good pleasure, the father's pleased in his son, because of what his son is going to do. Which is reconciling all things. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Again, how is he reconciling him? And through him. It is through Christ. The entire Christian life is through Christ. He is the incomparable one. So reconciliation, which we're going to define in a moment, is a one-way street. There are multiple ways to get there. Reconciliation happens through Christ and Christ alone. Now this word reconcile, what does that mean? 
you hear a lot in the media these days and in schools and stuff. This word reconcile means to restore a relationship, to make things right once again, to restore something to, this, to its original state that it has fallen from. You know, in churches, there's a lot of talk about reconciliation. We're talking about racial reconciliation, economic reconciliation and, and reparations and stuff. But the reality is that the only reconciliation that matters truly is our reconciliation to God. That's it. Because when a, when, um, when an individual is truly reconciled to God, then reconciliation begins to happen on all fronts. Biblical reconciliation, let me preface that. Not reconciliation as defined by the world. See, vertical reconciliation, our being put back into a restored relationship with God through Christ is humanity's greatest need. It's not climate change. It's not shifting the political powers. It's not trying to reset and level set the economic playing field. It's not education. It's not programs. It's not having the picture perfect Hallmark fan. Your greatest need, my greatest need, and everybody's greatest need outside these doors is to be reconciled to God, to be put back in relationship to God. And it is in Christ who all things are being reconciled. Until that reconciliation takes place, no other man-made form of reconciliation will ultimately last. But when a person is reconciled to God, then the true work of biblical reconciliation can begin happening in the world. Now it says here, reconciling all things. All things in heaven and on earth, it says a little later in the verse. This is talking about everything that has ever been created, the material creation, human beings, animals, nature, spiritual beings, and the heavenly host, all of these things. It speaks to everything that God has made. Now, if, if you're thinking the way I think sometimes, wait a minute. Okay. How is Christ restoring all things to himself? Does that mean that ultimately everything and everyone is going to be saved? Did we just open the door to universalism? Some people have gone there with this verse. But that's a bad place to end up. That's not biblically accurate. So I want to introduce a very important principle when it comes to understanding passages that can seem confusing or contradictory to what we have been taught or what we think the scriptures say. This principle is called the analogy of scripture. And what this principle is saying is that when we come to a difficult or unclear passage or section of scripture, we compare it with the rest of scripture to get the proper meaning. So I think the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession really captures, uh, it, it explains this principle really well. So in, in chapter one, Section 9 of the Second London Baptist, it says this regarding the analogy of Scripture. The infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is the Scripture itself. Therefore, when there is a question about the true and full meaning of any part of Scripture, and each passage has only one meaning, it must be understood in light of other passages that speak to it more clearly. What that means then, an application of that, is if we're going to understand the full counsel of God and understand even those important passages, we have to be students of the word of God. Because if we come to a difficult passage and we don't know how to get there and how to, how to chase that answer down, we're lost and we end up in bad areas. This is also a plug for using these amazing little things on the side of your Bible called cross-references. Um, some of the newer Bibles are choosing to omit that, um, that's just foolish. Um, but you cross-referencing, okay, what does that mean? You begin to chase it down. So let's do that very thing here, right? Okay, reconciling all things. Does that mean everything? What does the Bible have to say? 
Let's start with Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew chapter 25, we're going to look at verse 41. Let's start at verse 40. Then the king will answer and say to them, truly, I will say to you, to the extent that you did to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them you did to me. Then he'll also say to those on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Okay, so apparently there's some aspect of, of people here that are not being put into a restored relationship with God. They're going to be put into the eternal fire. Okay, so that lets us know it's not universalism. We can go to Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, we look at verses 10 through 15, which read, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented night and day for ever and ever. Okay, so we know that angelic spiritual beings are being put there. They're not being restored into a right relationship with God. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon the throne, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged for the things which they were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so obviously we can, I mean, there's a lot more verses we can unpack, but I simply want to highlight, it obviously cannot mean that everything and everyone is being restored into a relationship with God the way we think about it. And even in Colossians itself, because we have to also, when we're cross-referencing, what does the book itself have to say? Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he, talking about Christ, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them and through them. That does not sound like they're all reconciled to God in a great relationship sitting buddy-buddy at a table. So this is not a call for universalism. Not everybody and everything will be saved through the finished work of Christ. Rather, what this is saying is that through Christ, everything and everyone will come under the lordship of Christ. And that Christ will ultimately bring about a universal peace. And that peace is going to consist of some unto eternal salvation. Into a restored relationship with God, well, they will enjoy his presence for all eternity. But it also means that others unto an eternal condemnation. But there's still peace because sin is fully dealt with. The great tension has been reconciled, has been put to, been done with. Things are put right once more the way they were supposed to be. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, we hear every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Enemies of Christ will bend their knees to him. All things will be reconciled and put right. If you're thinking about some of the earlier messages, the one who created all things is now the one who reconciles all things. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, but now by verse 20, by him all things are reconciled. He is the incomparable Christ. But this reconciliation, this plan of reconciliation through Christ, it comes with blood. Look at verse 20 again. And through him to reconcile all things himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace, right? Everybody wants peace. We want to make things right. We want all hostilities to end. 
We want to get to that place of shalom, true, eternal shalom. We want peace with God. But peace with God is the fruit of reconciliation. There is no true peace without reconciliation to God. That's the fruit of it. So this is at the very heart of what we're seeing here, of this great reconciling work of Christ, is that all hostilities will be dealt with and done with. Some of the hostilities are dealt with, and those people are brought into a saving relationship. But others, there will be ultimate peace because they'll be judged. But reconciliation has a cost. It has the greatest cost, and it is the blood of Christ, the blood of his cross. It's the gospel. Do you realize there's no other way? There's no other way to be to bring about personal reconciliation, cosmic reconciliation. There is no other way. It's always been this way. Reconciliation, being right with God, has always demanded blood. Some people think that's barbaric. It's not. If you think it's barbaric, you have far too small a view of God and far too big a view of yourself. God is holy. We were to turn to the book of Leviticus. Specifically Leviticus 17. In Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Now, if we were to cross-reference that, right? That analogy of scripture and see how it leads us and chase that down. We would eventually end up to the book of Hebrews. You'd end up at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, which reads, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to that one great and final sacrifice, which was the death of Christ on the cross. The only means by which we could be reconciled to God. If Jesus had not shed his blood, reconciliation would not be available and all things would stand under his judgment. But because Jesus shed his blood on the cross, reconciliation is now made available to all. Every man, woman, and child can be reconciled to holy God. But remember, we said all things. You know, I don't want to spend too much time here, but let's not lose sight of the fact that sin is so powerful in a sense that it has even radically affected creation. The world we live in. Not just people, but literally the whole created order has been affected by sin. And so there is a sense in which the blood of Christ shed on the cross will eventually bring healing and restoration to creation. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 20 and 22. For, cre- for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, animal extinction, all of those things. Just the world we live in, the the creation. It suffers because of Adam and his sin. But verse 21 in Romans 8, Romans 8, 21 says, For the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, 
Christ's blood is so powerful that it doesn't just reconcile man to God, but it also brings healing and restoration to the, to the world God created. The world belongs to God. He cares about it. We often think about the reconciling work of Christ only in terms of our souls, but it is bigger than that. It is bigger. I don't want to spend too much time here, but Genesis 1 does tell us that everything God made was good. Sin has brought destruction to that goodness. But God always wins, people. Church, God always wins. We will be reconciled to God. Creation will be reconciled to God. There will be a day when the curse of Genesis 3 will be no more. And that's a beautiful thing to ponder. What a creation but the new heavens and the new earth, right? Because it's a physical place. We're not just floating souls on clouds, right? We will have physical bodies. We will be on a physical creation. I long to think of what that will be like. I often think of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, where they're running through the fields and never tiring. What would it be like to run barefoot through the grass of the new creation that is just completely glorifying God in its totality and everything free from sin and corruption. That is going to be beautiful. That is going to be beautiful. Elizabeth Barrett was a very well-known poet during the Victorian era. Um, and she married a man named Robert Browning. But it's been recorded that when she married Robert Browning, her father strongly disapproved. And he actually never forgave her. And she wrote him many letters, many letters asking for forgiveness. And one day a package came back and they were all the letters never opened. Her father never read them. If her father had opened those letters, maybe it would have led to forgiveness and a, rec a reconciling of that relationship. You know, in a similar manner, God has given us his word as a letter of reconciliation. This entire book seeks to reconcile us to God. And yet far too many people never open it up and read it and encounter the living God and therefore are never reconciled. We need to be people that are focused on, in, in, in praising God and growing in our understanding of how immense of a reconciliation God has worked in our lives. And then we need to bring people to the word of God so they can be reconciled to God. You know, there were false teachers during that time. They were saying the material world was bad. Um, they were saying reconciliation had to be mediated by angels and angelic beings and these extra practices. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in verses 19 and 20, is making it very clear that you are reconciled only by one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great reconciler. And if you have Christ, what more do you need? Colossians 2.10. In him, you have been made complete. You need nothing else. You don't need to discover new ways to be reconciled. You don't need to try harder to be reconciled. You need only to turn to Christ and fall at his cross to be reconciled. I was, uh, even this morning, actually getting ready, and I thought about, just thinking about the sermon and I realized in my life, there's a, a very vivid picture of reconciliation. I try not to use personal examples of my life too often. Um, many of you know, some of you don't, that prior to the Lord saving me, I was married. And due to grievous sin on my part, especially, I was divorced. I wasn't a believer then. The Lord saved me, got a hold of my life and called me to himself. Praise be to God. The Lord then in his graciousness allows me to be his mouthpiece and present Christ to my ex-wife. And she is saved and reconciled to God. And then within the next few months, I find myself on my knee, on one knee, asking my ex-wife if she would remarry me. Which sounded like a beautiful moment, except she took forever to answer. So I was terrified. <laughs> a, it felt like it. I, I'm no joke. It's a solid 45 seconds, which in, in, in marriage proposal time is an eternity. I had a prompter. I said, like, you can answer whether it's yes or no, like genuinely. <laughs> right. Like I remember on this tile, my knee was hurting. I was on this tile floor. 
It and she just looked at me and she said, yes. I didn't want to probe when she said, yes, I'm not going to ask any follow-up. I don't want her to change her mind. <laughs> a couple years later, though, I asked her, you know, what took so long? Um, I really thought highly of myself, right? What's um, and she said, I was wrestling with the fact that it wasn't you I was trusting, but I was trusting what God had done in you. You see, my wife was trusting at that moment that I genuinely had been reconciled to God. And she had to know that I was reconciled to God before she was reconciled with me. Because when God reconciles us to himself, we become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I believe. That is the power of reconciliation. You see how it's only when we've been reconciled to God that true reconciliation is possible between each other horizontally. Reconciliation, that's the plan of reconciliation. Our second point, the purpose of reconciliation, verses 21 and 22. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So I have a question for you. So often we celebrate that we've been reconciled to God, but have you ever stopped and asked yourself, why is it that God reconciled you to himself through Christ? Why has he reconciled you? In order to understand why we were reconciled to Christ and by Christ, we need to pause. That's why the apostle Paul here in verse 21, he gives us a pause because he wants us to look back. He says, and although you were formally we have to understand who we were. There is a great danger in having a small understanding of just how sinful and lost you were before Christ saved you. Of just how vile and wretched you were before Christ was in, was in you. If we don't properly see who we were and are pained by that, then we're going to minimize and also not prize the reconciling work of Christ. We're going to miss the beauty of it all. So he says you were formerly alienated, meaning you were formerly estranged, cut off, detached from, separated from God. We've seen how every single person is born into this world alienated from God because they are sinners by nature and evidence it by sinning, a sinning lifestyle. Now, I want to be very clear. Nobody, is alienated, nobody who's alienated from God can play the victim card. Right? Your alienation is not something that happened to you. It's self-imposed. Your alienation is something that happened by you. You alienated yourself from God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ephesians 4.18 also being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. You were alienated from God because of my choice. Why were you laid in? He says here again in verse 21, because you were hostile in mind. To be hostile in mind means you were in opposition to God. You saw yourself in your thought process as an enemy of God. You were full of hatred to God. Or to use an old word that I'd love saying, you were pugnacious. You weren't simply cut off from God in your alienation, but your entire thought pattern, your entire worldview was full of hatred to God, his ways, and his people. Outside of Christ, all your thoughts, your attitude, and your overall disposition was full of darkness and not light. John 3, 19 through 20 would be a place to see that. Here's the thing. Belief drives behavior. That's why Paul writes that then they were engaged in evil deeds. Because when you're hostile in mind, you'll be hostile in behavior. And you're hostile in mind because you were by nature alienated from God. Evil deeds, right, means you're engaged in wicked, ungodly, corrupt, morally bankrupt behaviors. 
And we know it's true. Turn on the news for five minutes. You see all types of sexual morality, debauchery, crass humor, violence, ungodly speech, not only being displayed, but celebrated. Celebrated. I just saw uh, public high schools no longer have prom kings and prom queens. They have like courts, right? So a, a, a male could be a prom queen. A female could be a prom king. It's celebrated. It's applauded. We grow dull to that. We're like, yeah, the world sucks. This was happening. No, this is the celebration of godlessness. It is a, it, that is exactly what Paul is saying is considered an evil deed. Time doesn't permit us, but I would encourage you to read Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, to see what this looks like. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that you find in Romans chapter 1 18 through 32 is happening in the world right now. Sure, clothes, technology is different, but the drive, the, the drive of the sinful heart's the same. But I do want to highlight verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. We live in a world that celebrates alienation from God, hostility of mind toward God, and evil deeds. No one can claim ignorance. Every single person outside of Christ is an active participant in their hostility and evilness toward God, his ways, and his people. This is why as Christians, we believe in the doctrine of total depravity, that every single part of who you are has been affected and infected with sin. I'm not saying you're as sinful as you can be, but there is not one part of you that is not tainted by sin. And if it wasn't for the common grace of God, every single person in here would make Hitler look like a choir boy. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to know that's who you were and not minimize it. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, you may disagree with all I'm saying, but I challenge you to look in the mirror and really ask yourself that if we took all the masks that you hide, from, hide behind, how would you really see yourself and how would the world see you? And so understanding that Paul then can say in verse 22, yet he has now. You're no longer that person, though, in Christ. You're a new creation. But look, at he has now. This is the work of Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for you and in you. It's all of him. He took the initiative to take alienated, hostile, evil people and make them something new. You were formerly alienated, but you are now reconciled. It's the great reversal. It's the great exchange. It's the great restoration. You're back in relationship with God. You're at peace with God in Christ alone. And it says through his fleshly body through death. Again, there's no other way. There is no other way. Nothing was held back. Jesus's sacrifice was total. He bled, he suffered, he died. The fullness of God's wrath towards sin was poured on him. He gave all that he was for you to be reconciled. It was the perfect and complete sacrifice. So why has God reconciled you to himself? We come back to that question. In order to present you holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Holy. To be separated. For, by God and for God, to be dedicated to God, to live in a manner worthy of God. In verse 2, 4, and 12 of Colossians 1, we see Christians being called saints, holy ones. Now we're being told that this set-apartness we're supposed to grow into. We are growing into our holiness. We have been saved from sin unto holiness. We are growing into what God has already declared of us. And so everything we think, say, do, and desire should be marked by this holiness. And there will be a day, because this is future, this is talking about presenting us before. There will be a day, church, when Christ will present us before his Father, and we will be fully free from sin and holy. Therefore, we will be what the next word is, blameless. You have no blemish, no defect. Ephesians 5 talks about presenting, a, making us pure without any blemish or wrinkle, right? 
He will present us as his bride in a perfectly white gown. That is what he is producing in you and me today. And we'll be beyond reproach without any, no accusation. Beyond reproach means no accusation can be brought against you. There can't be any charges put on your account. That's already been accomplished. You've been justified in Christ. That's what that means, right? No longer is that reproach. But now Christ is working in us and shaping us by the power of his word and the power of his spirit to be growing into these things and one day be fully those things. No charges beyond reproach. No The devil can never bring any charge against you. You're growing into your holiness. You're growing into your blamelessness. You're growing into being beyond reproach. But that's been declared declared for you already at justification. So you're not striving to earn those things. Christ is bringing them about in you. The Father sees you now as that already. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. That is a great hope of a promise of mine, a hope. It's one of the first verses I've memorized as a believer. Don't lose sight of the fact that holy, blameless, beyond reproach is how the Father sees you now, and he is committed to bringing that about in you through Christ. And so reconciled people live as righteous people. John Newton was a a slave ship owner. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He said this, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but I'm still not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Take heart, take heart, church. You are growing in holiness. You are growing in blamelessness. You are growing in being above beyond reproach. And one day you will be fully holy, fully blameless, fully beyond reproach. You'll be glorified. Christ is committed to bringing that about you and presenting you as such. And this all comes, you know, the reason we can be, have that hope of being holy, blameless, and beyond reproach is because Christ was always perfectly holy, perfectly blameless, perfectly beyond reproach. This is why he could be the substitute on the cross for us. And this is why when we give our lives to him by faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, his holiness, his blamelessness, his being beyond reproach is imputed to us, credited to us, and our life is then hidden in Christ. And so we can say with Paul Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so I'll just be brief here for our final point, verse 23, the proof of reconciliation. Verse 23, the proof of reconciliation, you read it. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The late theologian J.I. Packer, who wrote, is probably most well-known for the book, Knowing God, once said, the only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. What he was getting at is that men and women who have been truly reconciled by Christ continue to live in a manner that evidences it. And so in verse 23, Paul gives a warning and a charge. And warning passages are beautiful because they made us, they make us hit the brakes and be like, okay, I need to reflect and take some inventory of my, this condition of my soul right now. I don't want you to get caught up in, some people do, in verse 23, does this mean you can lose your salvation? No, you can't lose your salvation. Christ purchased you. Are you saying he can't hold on to what he purchases? No. But it is a warning. Because what Paul is saying here, if you continue in the faith firmly established, true saving faith is a persevering faith. It's a faith that endures. It's a faith that persists. The Lord Jesus gives a similar uh, warning here that Paul gave in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. And he writes, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. We need to accept the fact and be honest, not everybody who sits in a church on a Sunday morning and calls himself a Christian is truly born again. Many will fall away. 
Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23 make that clear. It's possible to be deceived in where you stand with Christ, which is why we need the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Word of God, because that's the only way we can answer the question of how do we persevere? How do we continue? And Paul says, by being firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away. Firmly established, meaning having a foundation laid. The person who's firmly established is the person who's been instructed and continues to be instructed and grounded in the word of God. A biblical foundation has been laid and you continue to build upon that biblical foundation. Not your feelings. That doesn't come by five-minute devotions. It doesn't come by going to church once a week and the other six days of the week barely opening your Bible. That doesn't cut it. That dog won't hunt. To be firmly established, you need to be regularly building on the foundation of God's word. You need to be steadfast, meaning unwavering, unchanging, immovable. You need to be a person of conviction. This is where I build my life. I am a I am steadfast that what God has said is truth. Like Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. I'm building my life on that. I'm not moving. Steadfastness can't be faked. Here's the reality. You you can't fake steadfastness. You can't manufacture it. You have to actually encounter the living God if you're going to be a steadfast person. Because the pressure of the world, they're going to turn up the heat. And you're going to find out if you're steadfast, if you have that conviction, if you're immovable. You'll find out real quick what kind of soil you are. Steadfast people truly have seen their sin and they know that it's only Christ that can reconcile. And it comes from, and steadfastness has to be daily. Daily, you have to submit yourself unto Christ. Lastly, he says here, not moved away from the gospel, not shifting, some say, right? You're not shaken. You're not disloyal. We see a lot of people falling away. Man-centered ideologies and philosophies are coming around and people begin to shift, drift. Social justice, critical race theory, social activism, politics, many more. They get pulled away, caught up in that. They start reading that into into the Bible, into their understanding of scripture. Next thing you know, they've lost the gospel. They fall into the same, and I think of Paul into, into the Galatians. Who has bewitched you with a different gospel? Men and young men and women go to high school, they go to college, and the foundations of their faith begin to get challenged and they shift. Why? Because they were more con- because we as a church were more concerned with making sure people were having fun than being firmly established. And so Paul's charging us to anchor ourselves in the hope of the gospel. False teachers are nothing new, nothing new under the sun. Let's build on the foundation of the word of God. Let's be convicted. Let's have steadfastness, conviction. Let's anchor ourselves there. Because then we can say with Christ, what is this hope of the gospel, right? He says, by the hope of the gospel, what is it? That he is reconciling all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What is the hope of the gospel? That we have been reconciled to God through Christ and that he is reconciling all things. Let's pray.